Hello and welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast brought to you in association with Castelli. I am Joe Robinson. I am joined by Mr. James Spender. Hello, Joseph. And on today's show, we have a guest who needs no introduction. That's right. We sat down and held court with the King, Mr. Sean Kelly. But before we get into the meat of that interview, some housekeeping uh, with things we like and things we don't like. James, good to speak to you again. How are you? Um, Let me know something that you've been enjoying, something that you've not been enjoying in the world of cycling over the last few weeks. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, how am I? I'm okay, Joe. I hope you're well also. It is lovely to see you. Um, And what have I been liking in the world of cycling? I have been specifically enjoying night riding. Oh, yeah. What, the, um, the 1980s? drama with david hasselhoff and, the, and kit the kit the car yeah yeah night, night riding yeah he used to go out didn't he with uh, george feeney from boy meets world that was the voice of kit they never met did you know that didn't they didn't meet didn't meet until the second season wow. at a show dinner they always used to record their parts separately did kit and night rider david, david hasselhoff is also the reason that the cold war ended but that's an, the that's cold a, war i'd you know, I'd argue it was we'll just the Berlin Wall that came down with David. And the chipmunks helped him out as well, I think. Yeah, uh, but anyway, we digress. We definitely digress. Night riding, you're into it. Night riding. So you can imagine what that's like, can't you? It's You take your bike out at night. Yeah. But I'm going to throw this curveball in there. Night gravel riding. Ooh. Ooh. So with a with a big old headlight, so it's a cat eye vault. Uh, no, cat eye something rather. It's 1100 lumens, so it's Fine. basically like a basically like a bus's headlight <laughs> and just cycling around the forest um dazzling the local munt jack and the rabbits has just been an absolute joy because it's just incredibly atmospheric kind of scary in a weird terrifying. way terrifying i would terrifying yeah but also i don't know if i'd do it oh, it's great fun man it's great it takes me back to being a young kid with nowhere else to be but on a mountain bike in some forest or other being late for your tea awesome so, so that's nice um but then Less so uh, has been the bearings in the pedals that have failed, possibly due to night riding and poor bike cleaning. But I don't know what to do now because I'm pretty sure you can get replacement bearings. I'm equally pretty sure you need a special tool for the pedals. They're um, Xpedo, which is like a look kind of copy, licensed one. And it's just a shame, man. They've, they should last longer. I really think they should last longer. Is it the is it the bearings in the spindle? So they're not. It is the bearings. Why? Where else do you get bearings in a pedal? Honestly, I have no. <laughs> you know how te- technically incompetent I am, so I don't have a clue, mate. It's the bearings in the heels of my shoes. No, I've lost. Yeah, it's your bearings, mate. They're 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 buggered. So that's happened. So that's a bit annoying. But hey ho. I mean, I'm guessing that it's not a case of it being. Is it not just cheaper to get a ne- new pair of Xpedo pedals, or are they? pretty expensive uh these particular ones are quite expensive because they're super light which is why i like them uh but yes it's probably i bet it's one of those things i need to look into it it's just i can see them now looking at me and saying why haven't you fixed us yet and they're quietly crying little drops of bearing oil juice all over the tissue they're sat on fun fact um i am i'm so negligent in terms of bike maintenance as you know james yes uh that I have, I my own Albay Orca that I own have a set of Shimano pedal, pedals that are now fused into the, into the, the cranks, and you can't get them out. Wow, 
There we go. So th- I've just got to r- I've just got to ride those pedals on that bike all the time. I can't take them out, re-lubricate them. I couldn't replace the pedals. I'll just have to hope they don't die when the pedals die. The bike's dead. Almost. Well, you can take you can replace the crank. Yeah, <laughs> just get a new crank. <laughs> It's an expensive way to live. It is. But hey, hey. Anyway, so that's, yeah, that's that's me. I'm doing all right, thank you. How about yourself and how about your riding? What's uh, picture fancies? Yeah, good. Um, got a haircut. I can see. Not an illegal haircut. Not, not I didn't, didn't break any COVID laws. I had my other half cut my hair. And as you commented, James, it's not, she's done quite a good job. Um, so that's like the big thing that's happened in my life in the last two weeks because I did have... Um, I was starting to look a bit coconut heady mm. with my hair previously, but now you know it looks a little bit neater. Um, but something in terms of the bike that I've been enjoying, James, and it's going to sound awfully cliched of me, especially in these times. So do hit me with that cliche stick. Uh, but it's Swift. Yeah, I'm hitting you with that cliche stick right now. I'm beating you with it. Yeah, I know. It's, it's all that anybody's talking about at the moment. Um, but you know, it, it has been a, a revelatory experience for me. Um, and for anybody who wants to ride during the winter without getting cold or wet, I went out at the weekend on Saturday in the pouring rain and I'm I'm still cold to the bones now. Um, honestly, I, I wouldn't ride outside. I wouldn't, no, sorry, I wouldn't ride inside. I wouldn't ride on a turbo trainer having it been for something like Zwift. I have an incredibly short attention span uh, and I get bored very quickly and I have little self-will to put myself through like a training plan or, or anything like that. And uh, Zwift has all of the necessary sensory stimulation that I need in order to coerce me into riding on a turbo trainer. Like, have you won any races yet? I haven't won any races. I, I've done. I've. Have you placed? Have you placed well? Oh no, 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 no. So I did. Um, uh, I've been doing a weekly time trial, ten mile time trial on the app. That is coincidentally hosted by a competitor of ours. Um, and last week. I think there was 140 people that did it, and I came in. The, I came around 130th, 131st, because um, unfortunately it's all watts per, watts per kilo. So I'm putting out big watts, but I weigh 90 kilos. So I am ultimately losing to a load of 12 year olds who are, you know, 35 kilos and doing 120 watts. Is that how much a 12 year old weighs? I don't know. I haven't weighed one in at least a year, but. I mean, look, Zwift, yeah, it's good. It's fun. I like watching myself ride around fictitious islands and I like it when people give me thumbs up because I'm very self, you know, conscious. So um, That's nice. But, glad to hear it. Yeah. Thank you. I'm all you know what else I'm enjoying is the, the feeling you get after you come in from a freezing cold ride and you get in the hot shower and you go kinda of red and get pins and needles. I love that feeling. Yeah, that I enjoyed that on Saturday. Things I don't like, James, are seat posts and saddles. Uh, a combination from hell. Um, who knew that they could be such an enigma? Um, I've already admitted that I haven't got the first clue in terms of bike maintenance or sort of any technical ability, and you can attest to that, James. But Yeah, how many, how many bearings are there in a saddle? I don't know. I've lost them all. Um, but why are we producing? What like? Why is it such an enigma? Why are we producing multiple sizes of seat posts and saddles? And why does every road saddle not fit every seat post designed for road bikes? And why do we have different sizes of rails and different heights? And why do like why can certain like carbon rails only be used with certain seat posts? Like I'm not like I'm not technically minded, but. It just seems, it just stinks of like this classic over-engineering that 
Do you want to tell me what you know, happens? The bike, Do you want to tell me what happens, a, a, The bike is a simple engine. Like the bike's a simple piece of engineering, and yet you over engineer so much of it these days to the point where I was left. I basically the saddle. I was on the turbo trainer last week, and I fell off because the saddle fell off of right. the seat post, <laughs> okay. and I fell off the back of. I fell off the back of the bike onto the floor. My other half thought I died because I crashed down onto the floor. Um, from about four foot in the air, ran in, and I was on my ass, laying there, staring at the turbo trainer with the saddle off. You know, thinking what what had I done? And it turns out that the cer- this, a certain brand of seat post that I had put into this new bike only takes the same brand saddles. Which is, I'm not going to divulge names. James. Well, I don't not... believe that it, it can't only take the same brand saddles. It's going to take a certain size. It of does rail. because I've I've double checked with uh, cyclist tech editor Sam Chalice, and he. Well, you're going to have to tell me what it is now because I need to know this information too. It's important for our jobs. Well, it's a very old. So it's a Bontrager Triple X seat post yep. from I think about 2017, yep. and it only takes Bontrager rails. What 10 by nine? Potentially, so. If, the Brooks Cambion C13 lightweight saddle that I put on didn't actually fit into the grooves. It was kind of just clamped. And when I sat upright right. on the saddle and sat back on it and put my weight back, it obviously flicked it out, and that's what sent me flying. And now I've spent my entire weekend trying to find saddles that are either compatible with the seat post or a new seat post that is compatible with the saddle. Wow. And that, that is incredibly boring and incredibly arduous and something that I don't want to be spending my time on, James. <laughs> don't have any time for it. But do you know what I find hilarious is the fact that you fell off a turbo trainer. Mate. You're the only you're probably one of the only there's probably about in fact, I can tell you for a fact, there are two people you and you are in good company. There are two people in the world, one of them being you, who have fallen off a turbo trainer. Uh, and the other one is Eddie Merckx. <laughs> well, mate, fam- there we are. Famously, yeah, famously fell off his rollers when one of the oxygen tanks in his um, garage exploded <laughs> and he thought he'd been bombed <laughs> because he had oxygen to train for um, as he was, as if he were at altitude. At altitude. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, that was some, there somehow you go. Me and, so me and, me and Teddy are sim- more similar than we thought. Yeah, I mean, I've often thought that you have a very similar sort of frame and palmares and sideburns <laughs> and sideburns <laughs> other than the fact jay's now nipped him off exactly uh mate two on the sides two on the sides keep it tight but um yeah, yeah anyway like honestly it scarred me and i i i was so petrified when i came off um and i hope it never happens again but here we are here's here's the over engineering on the bicycle james um Anyway, let's stop our rambling because we need to get on to today's guest. It's Sean Kelly. He's a legend of the sport and this is a good one. So, enjoy. So, usually on the Cyclist Magazine podcast, we introduce our guest. But today's guest needs no introduction. Um, I think we should just welcome onto the show today the king, Mr. Sean Kelly. Sean, thank you very much for joining us today. A pleasure and an honour to have you on. Yes, good evening. How are you doing? Very good, very good. Thanks. Um, even better for getting to chat to you today, Sean, because it's not every day we get to interview a legend of the sport of cycling. I think you'll agree, James. That's true, very true. Unfortunately, and there's not that many um, legends, you are in a very, very, very short order. <laughs> 
a very special cyclist indeed. Um, so Sean, I think the best place to start, so obviously when we have our guests on, we do research um, with someone like yourself. We know a lot about you because of your commentary career and just how much you've done for the sport. But one thing I stumbled upon in my research was a, a website called cyclingranking.com. And now what that apparently does is it ranks overall the all-time best professional cyclists from 19, starting from 1869. And it does it with a point system based on the historic importance of the race one, the competition that they, the winner had during the race and the toughness of the course. Um, Eddie Merckx is first ranked on that website. Do you know, would you be able to guess where you are ranked? Uh, maybe fifth, sixth. Uh, Sean, you are ranked number two. You are second. You are considered by cyclingranking.com as the second greatest uh, male cyclist of all time behind Eddie Merckx. In, and you beat Gino Bartoli, uh, the great Italian from the 40s and the 30s. Um, and actually Alejandro Valverde, who's fourth, who's still racing today and probably will be racing in 20 years' time as well, knowing him. Um, so... <laughs> On that, Sean, do you, this is a big question, do you consider yourself a great of the sport of cycling? Uh, yeah, I think when you look at my palmarès, um, you know, I have to be up there, but there's a lot of different rankings, of course, and some of them I'm in, you know, fourth and fifth place, other ones, as you say, I might be up in second, so depending on what way they calculate it, but um, I was one of the ones who could, you know, do it all. I was, in the early part of my career, I suppose, I looked at myself as a sprinter, mm. Then it gradually developed into um, a classic rider, which which was something you know you could say in the beginning of my career I probably would be a rider that could win classics. But to win a big tour, that was you know um, I think it would be a big statement. But um, you know I joined Stigrovaldi, uh, and uh, working with him, um, he was an amazing guy um, at that time because he was way way ahead of his time with the question of diet, training, all of that. So he worked with me for, you know, a number of years. And slowly I got, I got you know, better and better each year. Uh, he was one who was very much into the weight, which um, we talk about so much now in cycling. When you look at the guys, you know, they look so lean. And when you really, when you see the guys in real life at the races, it's amazing how lean they are. Uh, it's scary, actually, uh, some of the guys how... Um, how lean they can look. So, you know, John Rigabaldi was into that and he said to me, you know, if we can get, if we can get down the kilos over a, you know, a period, meaning, you know, one or two years, you could win a race like uh, Paris Nice, a week-long race. And then when I got to that, he was saying to me, well, you could win, you know, a race like the Tour of Switzerland, which was, you know, eight or nine or 10 days at the time. And uh, slowly then he went on to the three-week tours. So, um, I think, uh, yeah, in the early part of my career, it would have been a big statement to say that you know I could win uh, big, uh, big long races, week long races, or three week races. But uh, slowly, you know, with working on it, with working with the Gabaldi as a coach, as a dietitian, as the team owner, as my manager, uh, you know, I got there over over a number of years of a lot of uh, putting in a lot of work and a lot, a lot of sacrifices. So it's thanks to him, I think, you know, that I'm up there on those rankings. 
And I look at those Palmares, Sean, and so just the headlines are enough, which is 159 wins, which is the sixth most ever of any male cyclist. Nine monuments, a grand tour in the Vuelta. You won seven consecutive Paris-Nices, of course, and countless one-week stage races and stages. But then you look at something like your 1984 season, which is just as a snapshot. You won Paris-Roubaix, Liège-Bastogne-Liège, Paris-Tour, which at the time was almost considered the sixth monument because of its importance. Uh, you won the, the Tour of the Basque Country, Vuelta a Catalunya, Paris-Nice. But then you also came second at Flanders and at Milan San Remo and then fifth at the Tour de France that year, despite you technically being a sprinter slash classics man at that point in your career. Do you, are you ever, you said you was in, you're joining us from Galway today. Do you ever just sort of sit back with a glass of red wine and go, well, that was a good year, wasn't it? That, that year, or that was a, that was a, a real sort of purple patch in my career where I was, I was very, very good. And sort of, you look back at it so fondly because of how much you achieved. Yeah, well, there were some uh, there were some unbelievable years, and uh, the number of races I managed to win, and the actual races that you know the quality of races when you uh, when you list them off there, um, and um, yeah, you know sometimes I look at my trophy collection. I have a pretty good collection. I look at you know those uh, those trophies uh, at times, and I say yeah. You know what a career it was, and you know it was amazing. Um, the good years I had, and um, you know when you list off the classic races, you list off the uh, Paris Nice's, Page Basque, and then you go on to the Tour. And of course, in between those, there's probably a Tour of Switzerland thrown in there, which was the one I did a lot of. Um, uh, it's amazing the season I was doing, and uh, the number of races I was doing, and I suppose there's yeah. Uh, there's probably a good point maybe to that, but there's also maybe, in hindsight, uh, maybe a little bit of regret as well, because I was doing, you know, 160 plus races in the year. And um, I remember the journalists used to be talking to me, they say, well, you're not doing too many races, you're going to get burned out. And John Gabaldi would say, no, physically you can't get burned out. If you listen to the journalists too much, mentally they will make you tired. <laughs> um, but as, as I went on in my career, well then, you know, I moved. Uh, uh, I moved on. I went to the PDM team, and the program at the early part of the year wasn't as heavy as it had been. You know, with the CAS team um, for many years, I you know I, I realised that I could perform better in the Tour of France. But you know, my best years were over then. My time trialing wasn't as good. But I was in a position as well. I was in a Spanish team which wanted to do all those races, the, the Spanish week-long races, and I wanted to do the uh, classics because. You know, I um, I love doing the classics, and you know when you're um, when you want the big favors, you can win the classics. Of course, you want to do them, um, and um, yeah, a combination of you know both. I was doing you know too many races, and I've said many times since I retired, and maybe at the end of my career, if I had not as not a heavy program in the earlier part of the year, not as many races, you know, racing around doing the Tour of Flanders hopping on a plane, getting down to the Basque Country and starting the tour of Basque Country the next morning, on the Monday morning, which was, you know, mad stuff. Doing Pays Basque all week, finishing on the Friday, try, get, try and get a, a plane Friday evening or Saturday morning back to Paris and into uh, Paris-Roubaix. It was, it was really mad stuff when you look at yeah. it and you look at, you know, cycling of today. Um, so I think my Tour of France definitely paid, um, my performance paid because of that, I think. Mm. 
if I had arrived to a Tour of France fresher, um, I could have, you know, done better performance in the overall standings. But yeah, you know, that's something um, hindsight and experience, you realize those things as you go as you go on in your career and when you finish upward in your career when you retire. But you you must have been doing something right with uh, Jean Dugabaldi, who is your DS. At, was it Flandria, your first team? Um, yes. Because you had an incredibly long career as well for a, for any sports person, but also for a cyclist. So spanning 18 years. What was it like in those early years coming from, and how did it happen? How did it transpire coming from racing as an amateur in Ireland where, let's face it, cycling is not a massive sport back in 1974 in Ireland. And then a couple of years later, you're racing on the continent with guys who've come from a tradition of nearly 100 years of cycling. What was, how did that happen? And what was it like when you got to racing on the continent? Well, you know, I went to, um, to a club, an amateur club in uh, Metz um, uh, for about six months. And I won quite a lot of races there. And John de Gabaldi, uh, he, he was following me. So, you know, he came after me and asked me would I become professional with Flandria because there was a Flandria team in Belgium with Freddie Martins and all of those guys and then there was a Flandria section in France with uh, new pros and younger riders and Dugabaldi was looking after that so he he came he came after me and you know uh, really uh, pushed me a lot and in the beginning I didn't want to be to become professional in 77 because I thought I hadn't, you know, enough of experience, um, which I hadn't, uh, because when I, you know, came from France, when I came from Ireland in '74, I went abroad to ride some races. I didn't know how to train. It was, you know, when I went to the club in Metz, there, the amateur club, it changed quite a lot. And then when I went to Gabaldi, it changed uh, totally, and so many things changed. You know, the training, the way to train. Uh, you know, your diet. You're, you know, you're resting all of that. You know, um, I learned so much with Gabaldi in the in the first years professional, and I think, you know, that was something I was doing well as an amateur, like on the Irish team, going to the Tour of Britain and winning a stage. But you know, I don't think I was anywhere near my um, best uh, potential. I hadn't, you know, trained right to be at uh, my best at that at that time. It was really later, and that's where the big improvement came. When I went to Garibaldi, I think, you know, I came on a lot then after, after the first year, after the first six or eight months with Garibaldi, because of all that structure that he was, you know, relaying to me. Did you, when you came over, though, in that first six months to a year, you, you often hear the Americans talk about it a lot, that they come over and it's just as if everything's gone up five kilometres an hour. And even the British riders say when they go race on the continent, it's a completely different ball game. Did you immediately start getting results when you first went to France or was there a period where you were like oh this is very tough and I'm gonna to have to up my game um well I uh, I rode the Tour of Britain uh mm. so that would have been in uh, what time May time uh and then I went immediately to France after that and get the rest of the season there uh, in 75 uh, so I went to France with you know quite good shape after the Tour of Britain mm. uh, started to do well and started to win races um, but yeah, the bigger races that I was doing, you know, um, I did struggle a bit. And on the bigger climbs, where it was hillier, longer climbs, I, I suffered a lot because you know I hadn't uh, I hadn't raced, I suppose, at that level or those sorts uh, those, those sorts of trains. Um, so it took me a bit of time. But as the year went on in Metz, 
I did um, I did improve um, mm. because it was a full time bike bike rider as well. It was living there in an apartment. There was actually two riders from New Zealand who had been there uh, for you know the uh, had been there the previous year as well. So we were training every day. Um, where when I was in Ireland, I wasn't you know. Uh, training as well as I should be, but um, I think that improved my performance. And then I won the amateur tour of Lombardy at the end of that year with that yeah. club because the president he was an Italian and he took us down to do some race at the end of the season initially. How um, I mean, because because in the, for young English riders, there were the the trailblazers on the continent like Brian Robinson, Barry Hoburn, Tom Simpson. How important was a figure like Shay Elliott? For you guys racing in Ireland? Um, well, I came from, you know, uh, from a family that wasn't into cycling and cycling was, you know, such a minority sport in Ireland. Mm. I knew the name of Shaliot, but what he had won and, you know, the, uh, the, the palm rest that he had, like, I didn't know a lot about it until I, you know, until I got more into the cycling, I suppose, when I went to France and, uh, I was racing with that club of mates. A lot of people would talk about Elliot when they'd meet me at races because you know the you know the cycling uh, um, the cycling followers in France. You know they, they would relate being from Ireland and that. And it was then that I started to follow Elliot and of course the other you know, Robinson and uh, Simpson and all of those guys. But in the early years, you know, I knew so I knew so little about cycling. Um, where if you compare, you know about where you compare now the young guys. Like, you know, I meet young guys out and they're only 15 and 16 and they can tell me about the Palmares of Sagan. Or, you know, they know more than I do. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, that is the modern cycling. So, you know, when I started out, it was, um, uh, I, I was coming from a nation, of course, as well, you know, which wasn't popular. So to get something, you know, to get information, it wasn't easy at that time. And I often talk about, you know, the, the, the magazines. We would get the magazines here in Ireland from the UK we might get them a week later and it would go around in the club maybe between 10 or 15 guys. So you might be the 10th guy. So it could be three, four weeks old. <laughs> and again, you get to see the weekly magazine for cycling. So how, how did it feel though? Because like you say, those, there's people that can reel off um, Sagan's victories from days when he was a junior. And part of the reason for that is because of communication. I mean, back in when you went over to Belgium, presumably I'm assuming you didn't speak Flemish. You, a phone call home is probably difficult to do and expensive. Um, and as you say, you're not necessarily steeped in the cycling culture that you would find with your new teammates. How did it feel being that? I mean, how are we in your in your twenties, early twenties? How did it feel being Sean Kelly at that age? Well, um, you know, I came from a, a background, a farming background, a small farm in you know, the south of Ireland, uh, and my father he always had work to do on the farm. Um, and, uh, you know, in the earlier days when I was going to school, I played a lot of the school sports. So it meant playing during school hours. So I was back home in the evening time and weekends. But when I started cycling, of course, I started traveling around Ireland and I'd be away on a Saturday and maybe a Sunday or doing races. Um, and my father wasn't happy with that, I tell you. But <laughs> I was really, you know, um, I was really keen to you know, continue on cycling because it meant getting away from the work on the farm on the weekends and, you know, <laughs> traveling all over Ireland, traveling to Dublin, traveling to Cork, uh, you know, uh, it, it was just something new for me. So that's the reason I think, you know, I like the cycling a bit more because when I did start with my school pals, um, 
and my brother Joseph. Uh, you know, I wasn't really a, um, I wasn't really shown anything extra than the, the, the others. I was pretty much the same. Uh, it took, you know, it took a bit of time. It took a year, year and a half before I really started to show a bit of a, a bit of potential, I suppose, in the junior ranks. And I guess it was uh, some a sense of adventure that you cycling could open up adventure that other things couldn't. As you said, I mean, if you hadn't have become a cyclist, we'd, you'd have probably continued your dad's work on the farm, I assume, or, you know, worked in Ireland. And But, but by becoming a cyclist, you suddenly got an opportunity to live in France. And then next thing you know, you're racing all across Europe, um, doing stuff that... I, I remember someone else who speaks about this is Sean Yates, for instance, who says that if he hadn't become a professional cyclist, he'd have just had his normal job in, in Sussex and probably gone on the odd holiday. But he had this sport where suddenly he was in the Alps, then he was in the Pyrenees, then he was in the Dolomites, then he was in Flanders. So that must have been quite an um, exciting thing from, for someone from you know County Tipperary in Ireland to, to be getting to do. Well, yeah, it was amazing you know, when you could uh, go to France um, and you know, race there and travel around part of France and, uh, you know, see the countryside. Uh, so when I went away as an amateur, I was in that club and, you know, rotated races pretty much, um, you know, every weekend and sometimes midweek as well. Um, and, um, you know, to be, to, to be taking part in the races, like, it's, it was a bit of a, a dream, really, um, you know, as I, as I developed in cycling. And of, of course, to win races, then if you can win races, well, then that makes us, you know, so much more greater. And um, you know, I won quite a number of races when I went out to the amateur club there for that number of months. Um, so yeah, I certainly, you know, was no hurry to get home. <laughs> Didn't miss home. Wasn't homesick or anything like that. Um, not at all. Um, I enjoyed every moment of it. And then, you know, out there with the guys, you know, you start to learn a little bit of the lingo. Uh, with the guys in the club um, and you know they start talking then you know about professional and maybe you you could become a professional so you know you're on a cloud there really um, mm. as, as it went on it just got better and better and you know, you know I, I was I was always going to go back there was never any question that after that first year I wasn't going to you know return to France um, at some level I had decided you know, I would go back as an amateur but things changed uh, and De Gribaldi you know he, he offered me a contract so you know, I went back. Uh, I went back to write profession the following year. What do you think was that that first um, kind of penny drop moment racing with uh, racing on the continent, where you suddenly were like, "Oh wow, I've been doing this thing wrong all this time." Because as you say, you didn't necessarily have that mentorship that other riders did. Anything to do with diet or training or bike setup, where you suddenly were like, "Ah, oh, okay, I've discovered how you do this now." Yes. Well, uh, when I went to Rivaldi, um you know, I thought I was really fit and uh, I thought I was really good shape. But he, you know, he slowly said to me, well, you know, you're too heavy. You have to lose four or five kilos. <laughs> and you know, uh, that was a bit of a shock to me. But um, yeah, he was that guy who really walked on the diet. And, you know, when we're at the races, like, he was always about and he was always watching uh, what the guys were getting to eat and, you know, he would talk with the helpers in the team, what they would order in the hotel, uh, you know, each day, maybe two or three days in advance on those races. But when we went, when we went to the training camp in the beginning of the year down the south of France, um, 
you know, the diet it was very, very light. And a lot of the guys, you know, the uh, the riders, they would come back and they would have a, you know, maybe three or four kilos. And that was, you know, pretty norm for the um, for the professionals back in those days. But to Gabaldi, he would, you know, really have a minimum, the minimum of a, of a meal in the evening time. And I remember the riders, we'd be talking about, you know, sometimes you stand up from the table and you still feel a little bit hungry. But, you know, he... He, he, he had he had his idea and uh, it worked for a lot of riders you know you know he, he was a guy who took foreign riders into the into into his team which was something uh, it was something it was something that didn't happen in French teams you know all the French teams are French only pretty much um, there might be one or one ex- exception uh, in a team or you know they might have a foreigner or, or but he had, you know, he had Joachim Agostino in the earlier days. Then he had Stephen Rooks, you know, and then I, I was there with him. So he was a, he was a guy who would pick riders, um, you know, that he felt they had talent and work on them and yeah, really uh, get them to perform uh, much better than they ever had been before they went to his team. So diet was quite a big thing. What would you be eating the night before and also the morning of? Harry Roubaix, because famously in the in a Sunday from Hell, the film about Harry Roubaix, you have the commentator saying, um, "And now the Brooklyn team sit down to rare steak." And you think rare steak the morning of a, a monument. I'm not sure if that makes a good racer. What were you guys eating back in those days? Well, you know that was uh, something that bike riders they they thought they had to eat a steak in the morning before a big classic, certainly, and you know it was. It was something was done for many many years before, um, so you know that was that, that was that changed totally. And Rigobaldi was the one that changed, uh, I think, you know, many years ahead of the rest. Um, so if, you know, before a Paris Roubaix, I don't think we ever had steak with Rigobaldi. It was just an omelette and rice or pasta, something you know more easy to get down. Um, and he he would uh, he'd allow you to have you know a red meat maybe twice a week, and then it would be a bit of chicken. Where I think you know a lot of the riders they taught they have to eat steak pretty much every day, uh, you know, to, uh, to to perform well in the professional ranks. Uh, so again, you know, he 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 was the one that I think um, you know he had those ideas long long before they came into the other teams. And infamously, no bread was the big one, which from for someone from Ireland and in the UK, no bread's a big deal because. <laughs> Bread's a big staple of our diet. <laughs> well, it certainly is when you're in France and those uh, the baguette. You know how 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 nice uh, how tasty it is uh, in the morning time, especially, and then in the evening time as well. Like you can eat the baguette. You know, you could eat it all day. Um, so when I went there, yeah, that was something that he uh, he cut out pretty much to the minimum. Um, and he had these biscuits, these dry biscuits, which he used to give us. And he always said, you know. The bread, you know, that really give you big legs, and uh, it was something that he instilled in us and in the other writers as well. I can tell you because there were a lot of young guys. Uh, so you know, Digabaldi you know, was somebody that we looked up to, and uh, yeah, he 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 had us, he had us believing that yeah, if you if you if you have too much uh, bread, well then you're going to the big legs in the races, and that's certainly something you don't want. But what about when you come back? From the showers at the Roubaix Velodrome, and you've got a cobble. What do you get to eat then? Because famously, riders like Oncatil would be 
champagne pheasants and women in between races, especially ones they won. Did you get any treats like that or was it just back to the grindstone? Never. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, when you, um, when you finish Paris-Roubaix, you know, in my time and during my career, you know, you would just go home on the evening time. Somebody would collect it from the velodrome uh, in Roubaix and then, you know, you go back to Belgium, which was, you know, in my case, and you get something on the motorway, on the rest, uh, on the, um, the service station, on the motorway, or you might get back home to your house and have something. Um, and you would, you know, have just just the very norm again. You'd have, you know, maybe a bit of chicken and with a pasta or something. So, you know, you'd have quite a big meal because after riding a Paris Roubaix, of course, you would be just uh, starving. Uh, but yeah, even after the event, you know, there weren't, you know, there weren't any celebration where you would have the champagne. Um, where when you're in the races with the team and you win a stage or something, you know, they might crack open a, 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 a two or three bottles of champagne between everybody, and you would get, you know, a tiny amount uh, in the bottom of a glass, and that would be permitted. But, um, you know, well, nowadays, yeah, the teams, like, they go back to the hotel and, you know, they have a big thing after the race, and if they win, of course, um, you know, it's um, uh, it's a bigger celebration. But, uh, no, I never see anything like, um, like Ankitil was talking about. So if we let's fast forward to like the mid late 80s. So you're at this point, you've you're winning monuments almost yearly. You're half, you know, you're, you're winning Paris-Nice every year. You're winning stages of Grand Tours regularly. Um, what was life when you'd go back to Ireland, for example, what was it like for you? Because I always consider Ireland as a as a nation that really backs its horses. So if I think of something like Italia 90 with the World Cup, and the amount of support that Ireland gave to its its team, boxers like Michael Collins and Barry McGuigan, there's always such a big Irish contingent following them. And even now with someone like Conor McGregor, wherever he he can fight in Las Vegas and there'll be more Irish there than there are Americans. But for you, you were riding, you were being very successful over a very much a fringe sport. Could you go back to Ireland and walk down the street in, I don't know, like Dublin or Waterford and go unrecognised? Or were you, did you become a, a sort of a recognised figure and a celebrated figure in, the, in sort of Ireland during that time? Yeah, I think um, as I went further into my career, um, you know, when I was getting to, um, you know, the mid-80s when I was at the top, um, you know, anywhere I would go, I would be recognised quite a lot. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, that can be... That can be a bit of a problem as well because there's so much demand. And, mm. and of course, you know, the cycling, uh, the cycling world in Ireland, all the cycling clubs and that, you know, when, when I was doing well out there winning those classics, uh, you have a huge following here. And winter time, you know, the clubs, they always have, you know, their annual get-together, their, their annual social, which, which, you know, their dinner and they make a prize presentation. So you get a huge amount of that where you, you know, get asked to come along. And um, that was something that Gabaldi was very strict about as well, because at the end of the season, he would say, OK, whatever, the, whatever year, you know, it was, if it was one of the, you know, the really great years, he would say, well, you know, we had a great season. If it was one of the lesser ones, well, you know, he'd say a good season. But now we have to think about next year. And that would be in maybe um, October already. Before I go back to Bayern, he would talk to you a bit. He would say, look, you have to keep on, you know, you have to keep on doing a bit on the bike, do a bit of running um, and socialising 
going out drinking with your friends, all of that. He would really, you know, he would really instill that into you. That's not allowed. You can, you know, Christmas time, New Year, you, you know, you, you, you can go out, you know, uh, maybe, you know, once on Christmas time, once New Year, and then that's it. And, you know, you get back into your training. And he was, he was always on the phone. Um, you know, he would ring me, you know, I'd say at least once a fortnight, if not once a week, and talk to me and see how things were going. Mm. And just checking up, you know, reading your mind to see what exactly you were doing. And he would always say, you know, I hope you're not, you know, putting on too many kilos. Because something that riders struggle with now is when they, I've spoken to them before, and when they get a bit of success, they're, you know, the the public want to see more of them and interview them more. And and I think of someone like Garrett Thomas when he won the tour a few years ago and he was he seemed to be on the BBC every single day for about a month. And another rider that's very similar is Damiano Cunago. When he won the Giro in the early 2000s, he was on, you know, Italian television every day. They wanted lots of him. Did you have that? Did you have to have that as well? Or did you were you did you manage to sort of whether were you having like RTE for instance contacting you for interviews every day wanting to be on chat shows or were you able to sort of manage that in the off season so you could continue the riding and staying in shape well I had to manage it because I felt Gigabaldi was looking over my shoulder <laughs> and he was watching what I was doing so you know um, it was always in the you know um, uh, in my mind you know I have to be careful how much I do in the winter time. Mm. Um, so yeah, you know, I would do maybe two, three sports events, the big ones here in Ireland, you know, where I might be uh, in the running for, you know, sports person of the year. So I would go to, you know, two, three of those, uh, but like there would be dozens of them, which, uh, you know, small, smaller ones, but I, you know, turned them all down. I had to because to Gribaldi, you know, he had been warning me and he would be warning me every every two weeks and I hope you know you're not doing too many appearances um he would just keep on reminding me and you know that was something that he was very strong on that he would just be always you know, coming to you uh, every week every fortnightly and just reminding you about your diet about your weight about your appearances late nights and he often said you know he looks after himself in the winter wins races in the summer can you remember, though, even given that and that discipline, the first time you kind of realised the name Sean Kelly had currency and you could kind of maybe do things that other people couldn't? And I think of this anecdote I've heard told about, well, by Chris Boardman when he came back from Barcelona and he was a bit worried about going out in public. And no one really recognised him, but he walked into a chippy and the guy served him his fish and chips and they went to pay. And then the guy said, don't worry, Chris, no charge. He'd never met the bloke before. So he suddenly realised, oh, I can get free chips. Was there that moment where you're like, OK, I'm, I'm kind of somebody? Uh, yes, there definitely is that. You know, when I later in my career, when I had won you know, many classics and that, uh, you would come up uh, you know, against that a lot here in Ireland. Um, and that's, you know, that is nice, but... Um, you know, sometimes that can be the danger as well when you get, you know, when you get recognised uh, instantly when you go anywhere, you know, out in Dublin or wherever it is in Ireland. Uh, it has its good points, but it also can have its bad ones because that's where you have to be careful. And I think I was always, you know, scared uh, because of the Gabaldi warning me all the time that you have to, you know, 
rest up in the winter time as much as possible. It's so important after the season. Uh, and if you don't do that, well, then you're not going to perform. You're not going to be able to win races. So he had me, uh, he had me scared as such. So I was always, you know, it was always in the in the fore of my mind when when I would be approached about doing events and that I, I would pretty much, you know, have some sort of an excuse for for a lot of those uh, invitations. Yeah. I mean, infamously in Ireland, um, Jack Cholton, who managed Ireland in the 1990 and 1994 World Cup. Apparently, every pub in Ireland has a, a note behind the bar where he tried to pay for a pint and they refused everywhere he went. He never had to buy a pint uh, again after what he did with the football team. So I guess it's probably probably similar for you, Sean. But um, what what's so incredible about your career, and we've touched on it, is the way that you went from sprinter, so a guy who was winning four green jerseys at the Tour, winning stages and winning stuff like Paris-Roubaix, to then deciding almost, well, not overnight, but to then target Grand Tours. And you ended up winning the Vuelta, which is an incredible feat and something that we may not never, we may never see again is someone do that sort of, that switch. Does, was there a day when you kind of, we spoke about that sort of light bulb moment where you went, actually... Yeah, if I if I put my mind to it, I can actually go and win a Grand Tour now, having had that success in the monuments, and then going actually no, you know what? If I if I do it properly, I will win a Grand Tour. Do you remember that moment? Well, I remember it, but it was over you know quite a number of years, and um, I think you know first of all the green jerseys winning in the Tour of France, I was one of the uh, sprinters that could get over. Uh, the medium mountain stages very well, and I could, you know, Mac, I could uh, take a lot of points on those days of the green jersey classification. Uh, so I think uh, in the earlier years, you know, I I was able to get over the climbs, you know, pretty well. But uh, you know, working at it over many years, and you know, first of all, I'm a believer. You know, if you have a guy who can win Paris Nice, he can win. Uh, a tour of Pays Basque Country, you can use win a, a Volta Catalonia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, then you know you, you're on the road to maybe winning a tour three, four years or three or four years further down the road, uh, depending on age, of course. But if, if it's a young guy, you know, 20, 21, 22, um, uh, you know, that's that's a potential there. I think you know, with working on working on him, you can develop into be a three week mm-hmm. stage rider. And that was pretty much the case for me because, you know, winning the week-long races. And then in the Tour, Vigabaldi had me believing that I might be able to win a Tour. Mm. So he said to me for many years, yeah, you know, if you get it right and the others are not in the best of their shape, you could win a Tour. And, of course, I finished fourth overall, finishing the top ten a number of times. Um, so, you know, I was always progressing as the years went on. Uh, and then I won the on the uh, Vuelta uh, later in my career. So I think that was that was the fruit of all that work with Gibraltar over many years. Um, you know, getting the weight down. Um, you know, the training, the method of training, all of that, and also you know that winter time looking after yourself. So you know, there's many things there that I think were the recipe of you know me eventually winning a three week tour. If you if you look back now. And you and you said about you had the belief that you could win a Tour de France, and you actually touched on it earlier that if you hadn't raced as much and you'd have 
sort of cut out a lot of the smaller races, but you could have potentially won that. Do you? It's hard to have regrets when you've had such a successful career, but do you regret not targeting the Tour de France wholeheartedly? Or do you, are you more regretful that you never, for instance, managed to win Tour of Flanders, which was famously the one monument that eluded you and a race that you came within centimetres of winning on more than one occasion? Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, uh... There's very few um, uh, bike riders or athletes uh, in, in, you know, in any sport that don't have some regrets. Mm. And yeah, my, my big regrets would be yeah, Tour of Flanders World Championships. Mm. Uh, but yeah, just uh, the Tour of France, I think uh, I could have performed better. I'm not saying I could have won it. I could have won a Tour of France, but I think certainly got on the podium. And who knows if you know the others were well, maybe in the best on that year. Uh, I don't know how far I could have uh, got up the um, the podium in the Tour of France. Um, so yeah, that's something yeah you realise I think yeah, later in your career. And I I I, I kind of realised that I think you know I was, I was too late. It was too late into my career. Um, so yeah, but yeah, the regrets I think we talk about the regrets. That's with the Tour of Flanders and World Championships. They are the ones. The Tour of France. Um, you know, I don't really, I don't really have any regrets not getting onto the podium. But um, yeah, it, it would have been, it would have been nice to make a podium. And if I had changed the, uh, uh, changed my way of uh, you know racing and my program in the earlier season, who knows? You talk about that Flanders regret. Does it when you sit down in the commentary booth now with Carlton, for instance? Do you ever sort of go, oh? I don't want to talk about this race for five hours because it's because obviously the next week when you talk about Roubaix, it's amazing, and the week after that with Liège because you can tell you can talk about all the times you won. And but does it? Do you kind of go, oh, not Flanders? No, <laughs> uh, no, no. I don't. No, I don't think. I don't think in that way. But you know, when I when I do uh, start uh, maybe you know talking with people about the uh, Tour of Flanders. And the Paris Roubaix, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know they, they they talk about the Tour of Flanders and they pick out the years and you know then it starts coming back to me and of course yeah uh, it does uh, it does hurt a bit to finish you know three times towards um, and you know the way I was feeling in the race you know there there was more than one occasion that I, when I finished second. Uh, I was feeling so good, but tactically, when I look back later, I say, you know, I should have, um, I should have played it all out to try and win, and not, you know, not trying, you know, tactically start, you know, to make those decisions, just chase everything down. And you know, when I did, when I did finish second to Johan Lammers, I was in a group there. Um, you know, I think if I chased, if I keep on, kept on chasing everybody, um, you know. Uh, the minute somebody move onto the wheel immediately, everybody else had to make the same effort as well to follow me. Uh, that would have been, but I, I, I kind of, you know, work the tactic. Well, you know, some of the others will chase a bit and uh, just leave and take that distance of maybe, you know, 10 or 15 seconds. But yeah, in the end, um, you know, uh, I ended up finishing second. And yeah, this, with Van der Poel, it was, you know, the same situation. I was feeling so strong. I felt that, you know, there was nobody could beat me on that occasion. And, you know, I was riding, uh, riding so strong in the final 20, 25, 30 kilometres. And then when I got to the sprint, I said, 
in uh, in Mirbeck Ninov, the uphill sprint. I said, you know, I'll just wind up this sprint here now and I'll show them how to, you know, how to make a sprint. And I, that's what I did. And Van der Poel, you know, he start, I started 50 metres maybe. I started to get the big legs. I could feel the lactate, you know, the legs starting to burden and it was just slowing. I could, I could smell him coming by me. Uh, and I was thinking, what do I do here? Do I close it a bit? And I said, no, if I close, I'll be, you know, I'll be thrown off the race. So I just kept, I just kept going pretty, pretty much in a straight line. And Adley just came by me in slow motion. Um, one, you talked about sort of maybe tactical naivety at there at Flanders. One race where you played a tactical blinder, in my opinion, was the 1992 Milan-San Remo. So you were 35 years old. You were coming to the end of your career. And... You know, there was a new crop of racers at that time. There's people at Argentine. There was young Yoan Museo, etc., coming through. But you had potentially the greatest ever performance on a descent in the on the Poggio in 1992, in which I think you may even hold the record for the fastest descent to this day. Um, looking back at that race, you won that when you was 35, coming to the end of your career, and had the perfect sort of five minutes coming down that hill. Do you do you look back at that and say that that was one of your best tactical performances or one of the performances you were most proud of? Yes. Um, you know, before that race in the Torino Adriatico, I felt I was, you know, coming good. As the race went on, I felt I was getting better every day. Um, and I decided, okay, you know, just don't show your hand too much. Just follow the race here and use this as training for the uh, San Remo. And um, I went into Milan San Remo and um, I said to myself, on the Poggio, I just have to be careful that I don't, you know, try and make an effort or, you know, a couple of efforts and pay for that as you get further up the Poggio. So coming onto the Poggio, I was feeling quite good. The suppressor, I felt comfortable enough uh, and just stayed, you know, in that safe position top of the suppressor to make the descent and then between the you know the bottom of the suppressor to the bottom, to the start of the poggio just stayed in there and just kind of conserve energy as much as possible and i said to myself okay on the poggio argentine he was super in the torino atletico uphill finishes you know these three four kilometers uphill into a town uh, in the uh, torino Nobody could just stay with him when he decided to just go. He was leaving everybody. So my tactic was, you know, to sit back, you know, not too close to the front because if you stay in the top two or three, then when it goes, you have to make that effort. But if you stay back in 10th or 12th position, it's a bit of an elastic effect where it's not, it's, it's not as aggressive when they, you know, when they start chasing. So that's, that was my tactic. Just stay a bit further back. Follow, leave the guys fight and leave the have leave them have the battle. And as I went further up, I was you know feeling more feeling comfortable and I suppose more confident as well that I was really in a good position. And you know, Argentine had attacked, of course, which you know, which was pretty much I think expected from all the riders in the race that he would try everything on the Poggio and he tries he tried many times and eventually he got away. So as we got to the top, I decided, well, this is it now. Uh, you know, we're over it now. I'm going to try and make the descent. And, um, you know, there was Sorensen was there, which was the same team of Argentine. And I remember the first the first move I made, he just closed me against the wall. So I had to, 
like to break and you know knock off my effort a bit but then the moment I got the opportunity I went and uh, I just put my head down and I said this is you know this is it now I'm going to you know make this descent full on full gas and when I looked around after you know going shortly after going I could see I had maybe three four white lengths and then just got you know another little glance around and it was getting bigger and I think you know I said to myself these guys are not these guys are not have to follow me so I, I decided I'd you know push a bit more take more risk on the corners I suppose you know breaking at the, the very you know last moment and really you know t- taking risk on every corner and um, yeah I could see that I was go, uh, going away from the uh, from the group I had come over the top of the podio but also I could see Argentine I could see him down under and I could see I was closing on him all the time. So, you know, that gave me, I think, uh, it gave me more of an incentive to really take all the risks. I said, this is it now. You know, I just, you know, take take every risk and, you know, hopefully that I get down in one piece and I don't end up in the, one of the glass houses between the tomato plants. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, there were a few of the corners where it was, it was quite scary, but managed to get around and um, yeah, just got 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 back to Argentine just at the at the bottom of the podge with a kilometer to go. Mm. He must have been he must have been shocked when you suddenly having that gap on the descent and then you bit get to the bottom of the descent, he looks around and you're there. He must have had a bit of a fright. Well it was de- it was definitely he got the shock of his life because <laughs> I don't think he realised that there was anybody, you know, coming across. Uh, and yeah, there was a number there was a no, you know a number of vehicles, motorbikes and cars behind him, so he couldn't he couldn't really see, and um, I think on the podio he probably made so many efforts as well. He paid a little bit. His freshness wasn't as good for the descent, um, you know, um, as he would like it to have been. So uh, maybe he didn't make the best of his descents. Uh, so when you know when I caught him just with the uh, at the Flam Rouge, when he looked around, he looked, and then suddenly he gave you know that second look. Uh, he was you know uh, he was just uh, totally surprised that. Uh, I had made it across. And he immediately said to me, he said, Tira, you know, and I said, I just opened my mouth wide and pretended I was just in oxygen death. And uh, I said, no, uh, just, just shaking my head. And then he rode on a bit again. Then he looked around uh, and, uh, you know, he was just trying to get me to uh, take the uh, take the front. And of course, if I if I moved the front, he would have done, done exactly the same. He would just sat on my wheel and made me lead out. And, um, he continued on, and we see the, the what was left of the peloton. That quite a big group was coming up, uh, and when he was looking around, I made sure to move out so he had full view that he could see the group was coming, uh, just you know to make him panic a bit. And he continued on. He continued on riding because I think he felt okay. I continue on here at least. I'm going to you know the um, you know I'm going to be second at least. So I think that was his that was his. Uh, thoughts and you know maybe he was thinking that yeah I was also uh, I, you know, at the end of my energies and uh, yeah uh, it was one of my great victories and as I said um, you know uh, tactically I think it was it was one of the great the great I think the great tactically the big classics that won tactically I think it was the best but I will say and as as we often say in cycling when you're really good when you're super. That's when you make the mistakes because you think nobody is nobody can beat you. Mm. And, I, and I knew going into that Melanza Remo, you know, I was I was in good shape, but I knew there was a number of riders who were in better shape. So I had to work 
tactically I had to be you know, very, very uh, tuned on to get it right and not make any effort where I was going to you know, um, pay, for, pay for a bit later. So you are a dab hand at poker, Sean, I'm assuming. <laughs> yes. With bluffing like that. But as, as, you, as you say, um, you know, it's like too much confidence can lead to somebody's downfall, particularly in cycling. But knowing that you've got the legs does give you some confidence to really push past boundaries. And that 92 Lance San Remo does sound like it was a bit of a kind of, you know, a perfect storm of so many things. And you had those legs. But there must have been wins that you just ground out and you never thought you'd make like what was the kind of the hardest most difficult most surprising victory to you in your career um i think my uh tour of lombardy that i won with pdm um that was a difficult one mm. um because i had a uh, had a crash a number of days we got knocked over by a car or training and i had a pretty, uh, a pretty sore knee. My, my knee was quite swollen for uh, a bit. And, uh, you know, the days leading to the race, I didn't feel in good shape. And in that race, I remember uh, the first feeding station, I was suffering a lot and I had a lot of pain in my knee. And I said to the guys, I, I think I want to have to stop. I won't, be, uh, I, I won't be able to continue. And I remember Martin Ellie was there and some of the other teammates, they said, just continue on. You know, it might get better. And, you know, they just, they rallied around me and, uh, you know, just, you know, made me continue really. And um, just started getting better as the race went on and managed to managed to win it in the end, which was, you know, a total surprise to me because that morning, you know, I, you know, I would have, wouldn't have given myself any hope of winning the Lombardi. And how, how much did the kind of psychology used to play a part? back in the day um, between riders because now we see riders wearing helmets we see riders wearing sunglasses it's very hard to see somebody's expression like you said you open your mouth with Argentine and he's, he's looking at you thinking Sean's gassing maybe I've got this whereas I'm assuming that I don't know there was quite a lot of room to be able to make those poker bluffs when you were racing famously someone like Merckx would always be complaining of a stomach upset on the on the on the start line and you are not going to go well today. Did you, yeah, meddle with a bit of those dark arts? And how did they play out for you? Yeah, well, that is that is something, you know, when you're in the final of the race and, uh, you know, you, you, you're in there with a small number of riders, you, you look at them and when you're, when you're pushing it on and when you, you know, when you go to the front and you, uh, you really, you know, give it a big push and then you, uh, you, you move over and you get the other guys, you know, to come through. And as they're going through, you know, you take a look at them, you see uh, what sort of face they're pulling. And, uh, you know, you try and work, um, you try and work on that basis, what way guys are feeling. But, you know, they can also, you know, play that game. Um, and also, if you're really good yourself, I think that is the ingredient. Because if you're, if you're feeling really, really good and you make a big effort, and then you, you know, you just move over. You get the others to do to do their chores on the front. You recover so quickly, and you 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 think that you know you're just unbeatable then, but you know obviously you know some of the other guys are you know not not in bad shape at all. They're still feeling quite well, although you know you see they can be maybe pulling a face when they're going by. So yeah, it's it's difficult to read to read the uh, you know the uh, the faces of the other guys. Um, 
and I think yeah, the, one of the ways of doing it is uh, if you really try to make it hard for them, uh, that is when you see it. But of course, yeah, you can get your own tactic wrong as well. You're feeling so good, but when you go to that final sprint and it's just you know that you know that huge effort over 150, 180 meters to the line, that's when you really get the test who is the best. And I think in the Tour of Flanders, I realised that if I had waited maybe onto the final 100 metres and then just kicked, uh, I would have had a better, you know, a better chance of winning uh, the Tour of Flanders in that occasion. Who was who the worst? Of, who was the worst defender at really playing those poker bluffs and you could never trust what they were looking like on a bike? And how did you work out, you know, when they were bluffing? Well, it's, it's a difficult one. You know, there is... There is times when guys um, are, you know, maybe bluffing a bit. I think Eddie Plankart, some of the Belgian guys would have been good at that. But, you know, you can be, you can be going through a bad patch and it's not really a bluff that you're pulling. And it's the same for the other riders. You know, you go through a, you go through a moment maybe of, you know, 20 minutes where you're not feeling good. And then after that, you can come around again. So you can see a guy is, you know, in difficulty, maybe 40, 50 kilometers out, and it looks like you know he's pretty much uh, he, he he's, he's pretty much cooked, and you know he he's running out of energy. But then you know 10 kilometers further down the road, he starts to ride you know really strong, and on the climbs when there's an attack, somebody else goes in the attack. He's one of the strongest to follow. So you know it it just all changes so much at the end of a classic. It doesn't mean that if you're good you know, uh, at 40 kilometers out, or if you're bad at 40 kilometers out, that you're not, you know, you're not going to improve as the race go on. And it's all about, you know, just, you know, keeping your focus and, you know, not, not losing your morale because, you know, if you feel that you're under pressure at a point, well, then you just, you know, have to tell yourself the other guys, they're also suffering quite a lot. And that's the way I used to motivate myself. It, it, that actually what you said there about them potentially looking like they're going to explode 40k out and then being fine reminds me of Julian Alaphilippe from now whenever you see Julian Alaphilippe on the tv screens it looks like he is seconds away from exploding and dropping out the group and then next thing you know he's at the front doing a, a thousand watt attack on a 15 percent climb and leaving everyone for dust he's one of the the great animators like his face is so animated and you can never read him. Um, I want to move into the sort of the present day with you now, Sean, because obviously one of the, you know, you're not just a legend of sport, but you are, you commentate on the, you've commentated on pro cycling for a long time now, and you are one of the, the voices of the sport still to this day. And you are very involved in the current pro peloton and, and, and you have opinions on that. And I wanted to get your opinion on a few riders, um, namely the first one, Matteo van der Poel. So you actually raced with van der Poel's granddad, the late Raymond Poulidor, and you had a long um, rivalry of his father, Adria, as well, in the 80s. Um, have, looking at someone like van der Poel at the moment, have you seen a rider with that much ability in a long time? Do you think he's going to be a step above the likes of Peter Sagan and Tom Boonen and people before him? Um, to maybe even your levels or do you feel like he's being over maybe overhyped a little bit 
No, I don't think it's been overhyped at all. Um, it's going to be an interesting one in the big tours, um, you know, how he will perform in the big mountains. Um, but, you know, he is a huge talent and um, you know, he's, he has proved that, um, um, you know, he's just one of these, you know, he's just one of these natural talents. And now is the question, you know, how far can he go, meaning in the big tours? Um, and, you know, we're going to see that right, hopefully this year where he will be in some of the bigger, the bigger tours. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you know, he is, he is uh, one of the super talents. And, you know, that's the problem within the peloton now. If you look at, you know, a number of riders there, there's, you know, there's, there's probably, you know, maybe three riders, like the talent they have got. Um, and for the other guys, it's, you know, it must be a real killer because it's going to be so difficult to try and win a classic, you know, against those guys, the way they ride, um, you know, they just, they blow the race apart, mm. you know, long, a long, long way out, 50, 60 kilometers out. So, you know, it's a real difficult one for the other guys to try, you know, uh, to try and, you know, to, to win one of those classics. It must be a real difficult time for, uh, a lot of those guys who are hugely talented also, but just that little bit of those top guys. And one of the others in that sort of bracket of super talented is Walt Van Aert, who arguably is the closest thing we've seen to yourself in a long time in that he's winning stage bunch, he's winning the bunch sprints in a stage race, then he's winning a monument. And then we're seeing him in the, the high Alps pulling for the likes of Roglic. He, you must see sort of shades of yourself in someone like Van Aert when you watch him race. Well, yeah, I think there is shades, but I think uh, in the big mountains, uh, he is unbelievable. And, you know, last year in the tour, the way he was riding in those big, long climbs, um, again, you know, a huge talent. And we were always, you know, wondering, cyclocross we knew, classics, mm-hmm. You know, it was pretty much a guarantee that he would be a one who could win big classics. And then we're asking stage races, you know, how far could he go? And, you know, he answered that question last year on the tour. Unbelievable the way he was riding. Um, you know, winning sprints there. And the way he was winning the sprints, he was looking after Roglic until, you know, maybe two or three kilometres to go. And then he was changing his focus totally. He was getting the free hand from the team. Yeah you can go for the stage now. And to be able to do that, just, you know, to change change that, you know, mentally, change your focus, uh, it's just an unbelievable talent he has got. Um, and then, you know, the, physically to be able to do it as well. And riding for, you know, for the team every day, then able to ride on those mountain stages. Um, you know, um, it, was, it was just, you know, it was just mind-boggling the performance that he put up in the Tour of France, um, you know, last year for me. And yeah, he is—he is going to be a one green jersey. Certainly, he's going to be a danger one. He's going to make it difficult for the for a lot of the sprinters because yeah. you know he can get through those mountain stages and he can win uh, over that sort of terrain. Um, the question is, you know, in the next number of years, how far can he go? Will he be? Will he be a one who can do a challenge for a three-week tour? I, I can see that certainly uh, that he will be up there and uh, you know capable of winning and possibly winning a three-week tour. I, I in my opinion, anyway, for what it's worth, 
he for me is the first rider in a very long time that I could see being able to win all five monuments at the very least. I, I could see him winning Lombardy and Liège just as much as you know he's already won San Remo, and that's such a rarity these days. You know, back in your day, Sean, you won four of the five monuments. You had people like Bernard Hino who had the ability to mix it on terrain, whereas now everyone seems a little bit more specialist in that. The climbers are the climbers and the, the classics guys are the classics guys. But he seems like that sort of anomaly where he could probably, if he really put his mind to it, go and win all five races, regardless of how different they are, which is exciting, definitely. Yeah, yes. So, without a doubt, he is, uh, he is a one can win, you know, the Harvard Classics and, you know, the Algerians Classics, the uh, uh, Lombardi. Uh, he, uh, you know, he's very, very capable of winning those. And, um, you know, how much more can he win? That's the question. But I think uh, it's pretty much a guarantee that he can win all all the big five monuments. He is uh, a rider. Uh, he's shown that he can, you know, uh, win over those those sort of terrain. Uh, so it's a really interesting one because nowadays it is it, it is changed a lot. You know, you're it's really specialist. You know, the Cobble Classics or the Ardennes Classics. It's you know. Uh, it's it's totally different from the time I was in because now you have the guys that focus on those alone and it's much more difficult to win. Um, I'm very mindful of time for you, Sean, but a, a good question that me and James wanted to, to ask you and to, is probably a good place to end is um, cycling is a sport that is backed by sort of sponsors. So it's a unique way in that different weird and wonderful companies are, are the people that pay your wages. In your long 18-year career, what was the best thing that you got for free from your sponsors? So not a bike, but was there anything that you got as part of, you know, being sponsored by someone that was just, what was the best item that you received? I think, you know, with the, uh, with the sponsors, I think in the relationship with the boss, maybe, that would have been something that um, I enjoyed. And with Cass, uh, it was privately owned uh, Louise Knorr was the owner uh, of the family company and um, you know he was a big big cycling fan and uh, I remember you know when when he came along to the Gabaldi uh, and uh, he wanted to become the main sponsor of the team and they, they came in as a co-sponsor and then it, it became the main sponsor after I think it was maybe a year or two years and I had a great relationship uh, with uh, with Louise, Louise Knorr. And, uh, you know, that is something I think is nice. Uh, those memories, when I think about it, I was down there in Victoria, you know, visited, visited him. Uh, and, uh, yeah, uh, that is one of the things that I take from cycling. Apart from that, I think uh, the, the big thing, I suppose, for a lot of the riders is in the earlier part of their career, that, you know, that you get on well with the team. I think that is very important. Um, that you have a very good relationship with um, uh, with the um, with the team manager and the director of sportives, uh, and that's something. If you have that, that's something that lasts you know for all through your career and well after your career. Because you know, I had some, I had some very good director sportives, many direct, many very good director sportives, a very good relationship with them. There was you know ve- there was the very odd one that I didn't have best of relationship. But you know the ones that I went that I got on well with, they are real good memories, and they're something that I will always cherish. What about what's the weirdest thing you ever won? 
obviously a winner gets prize money shared amongst the team. There's a trophy, but we see some strange prizes, you know, your weight in local ham or a car full of beer. And I think Lucho Herrera, the Colombian cyclist, once won a prize bull. What's any anything you've or you or your teammates have won where you're just like, what am I supposed to do with this? Well, I won uh, a beef heifer in uh, in Holland in one of the teams after Tour of France one year, uh, <laughs> and then uh, I remember after you know the race with the organizer, I was wondering what could I, you know, what could I do with with this uh, with this beef heifer, and they said, well, you can take it alive or you can take it ready for the deep freeze. So I said, well, <laughs> it'll have to be the deep freeze because I don't have any place to put it in Belgium. Uh, so yeah, that was one of the uh, rarest things that I won during my career. And I don't know if we've uh, got time for this, Joe, but I'm going to ask it anyway because it's been burning my mind since we said that uh, you said kindly you were going to come on the podcast. There's two anecdotes I've heard about you that paint you in two different lights. So number one, tell me if they're true, and then number two, tell me which one you relate to most. So one of them is I think when you were on uh, the skill team. They were driving you to or from a race, stopped at a service station, and then everyone went out, everyone got back in the bus, drove off, and where's Sean? And they'd driven many miles away, and they looped around when they realised they hadn't picked you up. And you're a big star. And they came back, and another big star would be jumping up and down going, where's the driver? And you were just apparently sitting on the grass. You went, hey, and got on the bus. So that's anecdote number one. You didn't say anything. You were cool as a cucumber and just didn't didn't phase you. The other anecdote is you maybe in a Velta, and I forget who which rider tells this story, but you asked a teammate for a bead on and you sprayed it all over your head. It was a very hot day. Then you asked the rider on the uh, competition side, so uh, another rider from another team for a bead on. Everyone is sweating you know, their behinds off. No water for ages. And you take the bead on and you look at the rider in the eye and you just pour it out. Can you remember doing that? Is that a true, either one of those true about Sean Kelly and, and which, which one are you as a racer, do you think, when you look back? Uh, well, the one about the bidding, um, I don't remember pouring it out because, uh, you know, if everybody is just you know, dying of thirst, <laughs> um, um, no, I don't, I don't remember doing that, but I've heard it. Um, but I do remember, you know, sometimes when you be riding along, you might take a bit and take a sip to it, uh, take a drink from it and pretend that you're, you know, you have nothing in the bottle. That I did a few times with guys when it was really, you know, um, really scorching weather and, you know, we weren't able to get the cows to us to, us to get you know, a bottle. Uh, so, yeah, that I have done. Um, the one with the team, it was with PDM, actually. We were going from Belgium down to... Uh, down to France, it was for uh, Paris, Brussels. And we stopped at, at one of the service stations for something to eat. And uh, I remember we were coming out with the riders and I said, I'm going to get the paper, guys. And uh, I went to the shop and got the, the uh, Le Keep, the French newspaper. And I came out of the shop and then the bus was going down the road and I, I started running after them waving, but they never see me. And yeah, I had to sit there and wait. Um, Wait for quite a long time. They arrived, I think, you know, ten or fifteen kilometres further down the motorway. So they said, just you know, come back and come to the service station and collect me. So yeah, that is that is a true story. And I think yes, that would be me. I said, yeah, 
they'll, they'll eventually miss me uh, and they, uh, they will, they, they, you know, they'll have to come back. And that's, that's what I did. I just sat on the grass there and I was reading the paper and was waiting until they came back to collect me. <laughs> Brilliant. So there we have it, James. Uh, an absolute honour to have the King, Mr. Sean Kelly, on uh, with, for an interview. Very, very happy that he took some time out of his very busy day to come chat to us. Did you enjoy that, James? Did you enjoy chatting to the King? I really did. He's he yeah he he has an air of a man possessed of greatness. You can kind of you're very much in his tractor beam thrall as he uh, regales you with tales. I could listen to him all days. Top, top guy, amazing rider, and when you, yeah, when you uh, cast your mind back on over the stuff that he won, just like goodness me, that's a serious, that's an incredible career. The sheer number of races he was doing per year and 195 wins. Like Merck's obviously famously 525, mm. but it's but Merck's is an alien. So Merck's is an alien. 195 wins as a in a pro career is phenomenal. Well, it's like, actually there's only one current rider has a total higher than that and that's Andre Greipel so really? even, even like Mark Cavendish uh, Peter Sagan they're, they're not you know they haven't hit that sort of Sean Kelly total mm. um, which is incredible considering Sean Kelly wasn't a he was a fast finisher he was a sprinter but he was never like the current day sprinter where they were you know turning up to races to win six seven stages and have a whole yeah. team designed to, you know to, to help him to that he would just mm. be turning up to races and be like ah Maybe I can win today's bunch sprint, or, or I can get into today's break, or etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Which makes it even more, even the more sort of impressive. Yeah, well, I have got a theory about this that it can't be done again. That level of winningness can't be done again because of race radio. Ah, because of race radio. Yeah, back in the day. So remember when Sagan came along, people didn't know who he was, and then boom, this guy just starts smashing it out and winning, re- winning anything he seems to want to win. And then he's really petered off in the last couple of years, and he will tell you as he, you know, he gets marked out. He is a mm. known threat, and he is not allowed to escape. He isn't allowed to get. He's never really had any kind of like serious lead out train anyway. But his whole idea of you know him freelancing, as they like to call it, when he's in a bunch sprint, it's just so difficult for him. Mm. But he's a marked man, and everyone knows where he is on the course, and there's radio. Oh yeah. Whereas you know when someone like Merckx was racing, there's a great story with him and Roger Devlamic where. Roger Devlamic basically escapes up the road and high and Merckx is just like, well, he's gone. And then he gets off his bike and hides under a bridge. And then he waits for <laughs> Merckx to cycle past him. And he gets back on and then he cycles up behind Merckx and taps on the shoulder. And Eddie's just like, what? And you couldn't do that with race radio because they'd be like, yeah, Roger's getting off his bike and hiding under a bridge. And something and a similar thing with, with Kelly when he's talking about going off on the, on the Poggio. Yeah. You kind of think... If there's eyes on him, the teams are just getting it in the air. Go, 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 go. Whereas you can, I'm not, and this shouldn't detract from how amazing he was as a rider. But I do wonder if maybe race radio has killed the ability to have such a stellar career because you just get marked out. I, I think cycling is definitely more of a tactical sport with race radio. Um, in the last few years, it's ultimately the strongest rider will always win. But back in the 60s, 70s and 80s, it was just through brute strength. It yeah. was Sean Kelly's the strongest man on this day, so he's going to ride away from everyone. A couple of people may be able to stick with him, but he'll beat him in a sprint. And, you know, Merckx was infamous for just putting the hammer down and then nobody could keep up with him. Whereas even, you know, if you look at the riders today, even the extremely strong ones, 
they're not sort of putting the hammer down with 70 80k to go dropping everyone and then and then just get into the finish they're there's a bit more tactical now. It feels like race winning moves are happening later. It sometimes feels like the big races, if you look at like a Flanders or a Bay, will have a bigger selection of riders later on in the race than there ever was back in the day. Mm. And I think that is because of the influence of team radios and better tactics and teams working towards a common goal rather than their own personal ambitions. Yeah. But ironically we say that i think at the moment we're we're seeing two riders come into the sport i would even argue a third who's already in it that are almost throwbacks almost okay. riders from the from yesteryear which is walt van Aert, yeah the jumbo visma rider and matteo van der Poel, the albersin phoenix rider the the two cyclocross geniuses um they seem to be the kind of guys and the kind of racers who in their first two three years on the road have just rode like Merckx used to or the Vlamink in which was oh there's 60k to go now I'm just going to ride a lot harder than everyone else and if anyone can keep up with me congratulations yeah. and we'll duke it out or you're not going to be able to keep up with me and then I'm going to win the race and and that and that's what that's very enjoyable I think I think they've those two, alongside the third rider I'd mention in that similar vein, is Julian Alaphilippe. Mm-hmm. I think he has a very similar mantra. It's, uh, I'm going to give everything from now till the end of the race. And if I blow up, I blow up. If I win, I win. And if you manage to stay with me and then drop me, then well done. And uh, I think these three guys are injecting some sport, some sort of in- excitement into the racing that was kind of like lacking for the like last 15, 20 years. And I think if you can like trace it back to someone like Lance, or maybe even before that, where you got these guys who are so focused on like one goal in a season, like they'll they'll build their entire season around one race, and a team would buy, build their entire year around one race and one rider's performance at that race. But everything became kind of distilled and quite defensive. It was like, oh, I'm too scared to lose. You know, Ineos would, or Team Sky, as they used to be known, would too scared to lose the tour to to really attack and win it it didn't obviously matter because they won it and it's the same with like lance mm. when he won his tours it was you know i'm the strongest rider here so we will just like ta- we'll just like chip away at you every day and eventually i'm going to win whereas the these two guys that have come into the sport now in van art and van der Poel feel a bit more like they did rode in the 80s and the 70s in that it's like I'm just going to go as hard as I can. Yeah, heart on the sleeve stuff. Yeah, and if it if all if it fails and I blow up, and we've seen Matteo van der Poel blow up in a road race at the World Championships yeah, in 2019, yeah. they it's like spectacular. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. It's like oh, I've lost ten minutes in two <laughs> kind yeah. of levels of blowing up. Not not oh, I'm still just holding on at the back of the bunch. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I do. I do. You know, far. Uh, cleverer, better versed cycling journalist than I. I do think point to Postal and Lance's team as, as you know that coincided with the beginnings of race radio and just an incredibly well drilled tactical machine, all geared up for one race specific thing. Didn't even bother competing in half the races. You know this idea that you how many did Kelly say he was racing in a season? 160 did, races in a season that just I wouldn't it, happen to someone like no. Armstrong. Well, you look at today, even the guys that are doing the most race days are only doing it in the 90s. Yeah, like it's, it's it's a big thing when a rider in the current peloton hits 100 race days. Mm. 
Whereas in as as Kelly mentioned in his day, if you weren't doing a hundred race days, you weren't earning your money. Yeah, like you weren't earning your your wage. Yeah, you go to the Tour de France or a grand a grand tour basically, and uh, you would find yourself racing more Kermises and like city criteriums afterwards, the natural stages. Just to, that's where you actually started making your money. The one that always gets me, and Sean mentioned it during the podcast, is the idea that riders would routinely do the Tour of Flanders on Sunday which is in Belgium, fly straight to the Basque Country, do a five-day stage race in the Basque Country, which is notoriously one of the hardest stage races because the terrain in the Basque Country is extremely steep. Uh, it's normally wet. It's, you know, narrow roads. It's a hard days, hard week worth of racing. And then would get, immediately after finishing that race, would get on the first flight back to where they'd just come from in Flanders, northern, you know, northern France, to race Paris Bay, which is the hardest day of racing in the calendar like what why would you even do that that's in why well that's insane oh dear it is yeah it's incredible they built them built them hard back in the day didn't they i'm not saying riders now aren't equally talented aren't equally hard as nails but they were given sort of space to flex their muscles back in the 70s 80s 90s and i'd definitely back sean kelly in a wood chopping competition i'd back him in most things a fist fight scrabble fair um we're going to bring an end to the show there. Uh, thank you very much for tuning in again. Um, as ever, do share, review, like, um, comment on the Cycling Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and for the time being, we will talk to you again in two weeks' time. See you later. <laughs>